This is Terms of Reference Podcast number 166. We are entrepreneur-led. so And that's distinct from being what you might call strategy-driven. We don't spend a lot of time thinking deeply about a sector and saying, what is our theory of change about why that sector doesn't work well? And how can we go out and invest against those gaps in that theory of change? Instead, we're out there looking for entrepreneurs and their ideas and then saying, how can we support you to generate evidence of impact for this and pivot your way to an interesting and resilient business model. This is Terms of Reference. I'm your host, Stephen Laddick. Most social sector work, if not all of it at this stage, is driven by some type of results framework that is focused on outcomes. Unsurprisingly, when people, or a government or a foundation, give you their money to do some good in the world, they want to know it actually happens, or, as is often the case, you at least gave it your best shot. Underpinning these frameworks are theories of change. In this paradigm, gaps in markets or social contexts are identified by the social actor, and then they design programs or products or services in an attempt to fill those gaps. Now, for those of you who've been listening to this show for any amount of time, this is standard stuff. And as you know, we're here to talk about how we break this kind of system. So on today's 166th Terms of Reference podcast, my guest is Alec Tuani. She and I explore an alternative to the theory of change approach, what she and her colleagues call being venture or entrepreneur driven. Alex is the CEO of the Global Innovation Fund a $200 million fund that takes a venture capital approach to supporting entrepreneurs and the scaling of evidence-based innovation in global health and development. This is an exciting discussion as we discuss the fund's current ventures and the criteria for those investments, how the fund partners with the private sector, how you successfully exit from investments in social problem solvers, and much more. I spoke with Alex in Washington, D.C. But before we get started, a quick word from our sponsor. The Terms of Reference podcast is sponsored by International Solutions Group helping to improve the social impact of governments, UN agencies, NGOs, and companies for more than 10 years. Visit ISG online at www.theisg.com. Hello, Alex. Thank you so much for being on the Terms of Reference podcast today. Thanks, Stephen. It's so nice to be here. Alex, you are truly a woman that is all over the world all the time. Where do we find you sitting today? Well, this maybe is a little bit boring, but I am in the very small apartment that my family and I keep in Washington, D.C. You know, I thought I'd spend August in Washington, where the weather's so nice. I was Um, just going to say, August in Washington, where it's hot and humid and oppressive. (laughs) But, uh, you know, GIF has an office here in D.C. in addition to our headquarters in London. And it's always great to come and spend time with the team here and talk with folks in the Washington development scene and really, you know, keep myself current on what people are talking about here. Uh, I spent several years in Washington myself. Uh, the summertime in, in D.C. is a true pleasure. You are the chief executive officer at the Global Innovation Fund, which most of our listeners will probably be familiar with. But why don't you give us the overview of what GIF is all about? Okay. So GIF was launched in 2014 by the governments of the U.S. and the U.K. to invest in innovation to solve hard development challenges. So we are registered as a charity but we do grant, equity, debt, and development impact bond investments to support entrepreneurs who are scaling up programs either through the public sector or through markets. Our decision process really emphasizes a couple of things. Innovation, rigorous evidence of impact, 
and the potential for scale. So we don't fund innovation for its own sake, but are really trying to drive ideas to impact. And, you know, in the research prior to this conversation, I love the tagline you have in your literature that says, you know, we have a venture capital approach to this process. What's that mean in your mind? So to my mind, what that means is that we are entrepreneur-led above all. So, and that's distinct from being what you might call strategy-driven. So we don't spend a lot of time sitting in our office in London, you know, thinking deeply about a sector and saying, what is our theory of change about why that sector doesn't work well? And how can we go out and invest against that, those gaps in that theory of change? Instead, we're out there looking for entrepreneurs and their ideas and then saying, how can we support you to generate evidence of impact for this and pivot your way to an interesting and resilient business model. Example, if you'd like, maybe of what that can look like in practice. We recently took an equity stake in a company called EM3, who are working in Rajasthan and have come up with what they think and we think is potentially crack the nut around an Uber for tractors. So as you know, it's a big problem. And we're talking like agriculture tractors? like Agriculture tractors, Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, as you know, yields on smallholder farms are often far below what optimally they could be because of lack of access to inputs, agricultural inputs like tractors. So smallholder farmers don't necessarily have the means to have access to mechanized solutions for tilling their land. But large farmers do have these tractors that are not used all the time. And so what this company has done is they figured out how to just make deals with the large farmers who do have tractors to rent them out for the season and basically follow the monsoon up the state of Rajasthan, renting out services along the way as they go. It's fantastic. And yeah, and this is exciting. I mean, it's a different way of cracking this nut of agricultural yields that we didn't necessarily sit in our offices in London and say, you know what, we should try to create Uber for tractors. We found the entrepreneur, you engage in sort of a dialogue and a partnership with them and support them on their journey while they figure out, okay, what's our business model here? You know, should we offer other services in addition to this? Or should we really focus in on being good at one thing? You know, the answers to those questions influence both social impact and profitability. And we want to kind of be their partner while they go along that journey. That's the venture capital approach to my mind. Mm, I really appreciate that. You know, when the follow-up question I had to your first statement was, you know, you said, we're not sitting there in London, you know, looking at what's our theory of change and where's the gap and how do we invest there? Have you found that there's just a new energy around this entrepreneurial approach and that's where individuals and organizations and companies and, and nonprofits want to go? Or is this parallel to that? Is this a substitute for that? What are your thoughts on that? Ultimately, I think this stuff is complementary. You know, I spent many years of my career at the Gates Foundation, which is strategy driven and has had huge impacts working that way. I think where the venture capital approach is interesting is when we're thinking about how to engage with the private sector and how to deliver on the promise of blended finance. So, you know, entrepreneurs are looking for patient capital. And there's sometimes a mismatch between what kind of risk various funders are able and willing to take on and the kind of resources that they have and then the kind of resources that entrepreneurs need. The venture capital approach that we take is intended to fill some of that gap. 
And that's because we can take on a different set of risks than other investors can take on. For example, because we are working as a charity, not as a closed-end fund, we can be quite patient in how long we're willing to wait before we exit an investment. Because we're working with bilateral aid money, we can put social return really front and center in our decision-making about how to partner with private firms. And if they're going to make profits as part of their path to sustainability, that's great, but our job is to help them deliver on the social returns that they have. So it's a unique role that we're trying to play in the development landscape, but it can really pay off in interesting ways. Mm -hmm. We made a debt investment recently in a company called Bob and Gona, who work in northern Nigeria, providing agricultural extension and cooperative services to smallholder farmers. And, you know, northern Nigeria, pretty difficult place to work for philanthropy or for impact investors or for DFIs, frankly. And yet a place where we all agree it'd be super valuable to improve people's livelihoods. So what we did with Bob and Gona, who was make a deal with them that we would give them debt, but we would take on the currency risk associated with the investment, with our debt investment. And at the same time, because we were willing to do that, other impact investors came on board to give them dollar denominated debt. We don't think we're going to make a lot of money off of this deal. Even under the best case scenario for the company, we're going to lose a little bit of money. Mm. But we're not losing 100% of our money. It's not a grant. And we've been able to crowd in this other capital because we bore a particular kind of risk that we could bear because of where our investors come from. So this is really, I think, the sort of where we're going more and more as we think about how are we really going to do blended finance and how are we going to support the private sector towards achieving the global goals that we all share? I really appreciate the detail that you just provided there. Maybe if you wouldn't mind cracking it just a little bit more. So you're doing the foreign currency exchange arbitrage in that particular place. So you're holding that. And I guess, does that mean that you look to exit this? I was actually kind of surprised to hear that you look to exit investments at a profit, you know, with your charity status. So is that ultimately the goal of the fund to always try to find a way to exit? And granted, you just said that we're going to, you know, you're probably going to lose some money on this one. So... Our charitable status is interesting, and it's really what makes us a kind of a hybrid institution. If we exit from our investment in, in EM3, the tractor company, and we do make a profit from that because EM3 is acquired by some other company, let's say, then any profits that we make as GIF from that sale will be rolled back into our charitable mission. We're not an investment fund where we're going to pay back our investors. Mm -hmm. And so what that really means from our perspective is that, and we, you and I haven't talked so much yet about this, is the accountability that GIF has to commit to is really important. We're investing public funds in private firms who may be making a profit as part of their strategy towards delivering social impact. It's our job to be best in class about measuring and affirming that that social impact is really delivered on and not doing follow-on investments when we see that actually that social value is not really being realized. Why don't we go there and tell us about that accountability? I know throughout, again, the literature you have online and other places, there's a heavy emphasis on random control trials and rigorous evaluation and you know understanding that return. So tell us a little bit more about that. So in the case 
case of the Babangona, the company in northern Nigeria, based on some initial data that they have collected, based on our understanding of the literature around improved agricultural inputs, so improved fertilizer, better seeds, agricultural extension services, we have a good reason to believe that the farmers that engage with that company will see higher incomes, higher consumption, and all the other good things that go along with that. But that's not rigorous evidence of impact. It's enough evidence to make us confident in this initial investment. But what we've agreed with Bob and Gona is that we will wrap our debt investment with a grant that will do a rigorous impact evaluation. Now, this is not something that Bob and Gona would themselves necessarily fund out of their own pocket. And so we will do a grant alongside our investment, our debt investment, to measure impact. But that's important for us. If we're going to be able to turn back to our donors and say, look, the social return on your investment in the fund, GIF, is X percent, we need that kind of rigorous evidence to be able to do that kind of reporting. And is that an accountability mechanism? Do you take that on internally? Is that a mechanism that you've built within GIF? Or is that you look to an independent, maybe an academic institution or some other organizations to do that? So we've done a little bit of both on that front. We certainly, in that example, in the Bob and Gona example, we would contract with a third party to do an evaluation with them. But we have also really built up internal capacity at GIF in what we call our analytics function. So this is distinct from how other impact investors generally approach this issue of measuring and reporting on social impact that we have built a team of economists within GIF who can help us think about an order of magnitude basis, ex ante, before we make an investment. What do we think are the key drivers of return? What do we know from existing evaluations or research about what those returns look like? And we consider both breadth of impact, depth of impact, and the probability of scale and success. So, you know, that's important to think about both breadth and depth because sometimes you'll make investments that don't reach a lot of people but could be really saving lives. For example, we invested in Safe Boda, which is a motorcycle taxi company in Kampala whose value proposition is that their drivers have been trained to be safe drivers who wear helmets and Passengers are also offered helmets. As someone who has ridden several bodas in my <laughs> life or been there several times, thank you for that. <laughs> yeah. And in that case, you know, we really think based on the data that we were shown about the fraction of the surgery budget in Kampala's hospitals that goes to head injuries, we think this might really have a tangible impact on saving lives if they can figure out their business model. Then we also invest in companies like Segovia, you know, which I, probably a lot of folks have heard about. It's, these are the same guys behind Give Directly, who have a software as a service business to make it easier to deliver, easier and cheaper to deliver cash transfers. So that's a platform play, you know, could reach tens of millions of people, but you know, the, all the impact comes from the breadth of reach, not from depth. And you got to have ways then, how do you compare Safe Boda and Segovia? That's hard. So mm-hmm. we work really hard internally to come up with some strategies by which we can do that. You've presented such a smorgasbord of different opportunities. I and mean, we've touched agriculture, we've touched technology platforms. You were just talking about essentially a training scheme for, for Boda drivers. Take us through your process of 
how you as the fund not only receive applications, but also just you know, what's your process for deciding on what works? So when GIF was launched, it was very clearly done so under the uh, with a real commitment to openness that we would fund innovation in any sector, in any geography, coming from researchers, civil society, governments, the private sector, really saying oh, that we were open to innovation and being surprised and led by the ideas. And that's still very much our commitment. So GIF has a open window on our website. Anyone can apply to GIF and we process about, oh, something between 200 and 300 applications through the open window every month. Every month? Holy smokes, I thought you were going to say every year. That's, that's an amazing number. Wow. We also actively source deals. So, you know, I talked to you about EM3 in India and Babangona in Nigeria. Those opportunities didn't come to us through the open window, but instead came to us from being out in the world, talking to people and listening to people and spending time in Nigeria, spending time in India at accelerators, at incubators, getting to know the innovation landscape in the places where we really want to be investing so that we're sure that we are investing in local entrepreneurs, not only our friends in Washington and in London. And so when we've identified potential opportunities to invest in, we then rely on a, a process that's an interesting, again, a hybrid between some of what's great about academic peer review and a more venture capital style approach. So since we do invest in agriculture and technology platforms, you know, my team is not a team of content experts and specialists in any particular field. We love the generalists on this show. We have an episode completely devoted to them. So don't worry, we'll, we'll make sure that they're, <laughs> that we're cheerleaders for them. And that team spends a lot of time consulting with external peer reviewers to understand the sort of things we were just talking about. Breadth of impact, depth of impact, what are the key risks to success? How will we, and then how do we assess whether this team has the capacity and fire in the belly to address those risks and mitigate them? We also spend some time thinking about how can we help them mitigate those risks? Are we a good fit for helping them to mitigate risk along the way? Then there's some other core things we think about. Are the beneficiaries of this intervention people living under $5 a day? It's fine with, for GIF if investments do provide some benefits to the emerging middle class, but we for ourselves need to be very clear that there will be meaningful benefits for people who live under $5 a day. And then we, and then we think yeah, about rigorous evidence of impact and the potential for scale. Now, of course, it depends what stage an entrepreneur is at at their journey for how much we dig into these questions. For early stage pilot investments, we really want to challenge ourselves to be open to taking smart risks and letting people just see, is there a there there? So our investment in Safe Boda in Uganda, it was a very early stage investment. There's no randomized controlled trial of their program right now. And, and we didn't require one for it was an early stage investment for them to see if they could get some traction with this business model. As our investments grow larger, our interest and appetite for rigorous evidence grows too. So hence our discussion with Bob and Gona that they were at the stage where it made sense to do some rigorous evaluation. But then as projects get bigger than that, maybe they already have some good rigorous evidence behind them. And they're really just 
de-risking their project, pressure testing their innovation to really get it to be something that can be working at scale. And so we try and be practical in that sense. What stage are you at in your journey? So what kind of evidence collection makes sense? And ultimately, our funding decisions are made by an investment committee that's majority external. So it's not our board, and it's not me who makes decisions. But so you've got, to, you've got to go take the case to strangers, essentially. Exactly, exactly. Well, they're friends of GIF. and But I mean, they're strangers to the process. You've got to build the case and then go convince them, essentially. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And there's a nice accountability there in that the entrepreneur knows who's on the decision panel, our investment committee, and they get to engage in a dialogue as part of our decision-making process. So there's some nice transparency and mutual accountability there that if we're doing it right, people really appreciate. Do you have the capacity internally or is it your intention for you to be able to take organizations from seed to, you know, all the way through exit? So I'm thinking, you know, you gave the example of Safe Boda, you know, where you're sort of giving them some financing and say, let's go prove this. Let's go make this a really working business model. Would you be able to help them scale and then take them all the way to a point where maybe they're you know, they're exiting to a larger transportation company or something, or is are there different stages along the way, or, or how does that work? So we do have the potential to stay with entrepreneurs through their journey. So the smallest investment we make is usually around a couple of hundred thousand dollars, and the largest investment that we've made to date, I think, is something like $12 million. And in theory, yes, we could go with an entrepreneur from starting at $100,000 up to $10 million as they grow and learn about their business. And of course, we love to co-fund and we love to partner. So if and when we do that, it will not be us as the sole investor, almost certainly, but others coming in along the way as well. But you can enter our process at any stage. So, you know, our investment in Bob and Gono is something like $2 million, that debt financing. And, you know, it's our first engagement with them. So we were not working with them when they were at what would be more like a pilot investment for, for GIF. And so we try and be practical and pragmatic. What does the entrepreneur need? What stage in their cycle are they in? That's partly why it's nice that we can do debt or equity Many venture finance agencies can either do debt or equity, but not both. And it's also nice, though, that we can say no. If the evidence of impact does not turn out to be what we hoped it would be or thought it would be when we first began a partnership, we really try and discipline ourselves to have an off-ramp for ourselves so that we stay true to the GIF mission. And you know that the next question I'm going to ask is, you know, do you have a percentage of, of that off-ramp that you've taken? Is of the 200 organizations you've invested in, you know, is it 1% or 2% or is it 5 or 10% or is it larger that you say, you know what, this looked like a good idea, but not so much? So we've done about 25 deals so far. And, you know, we are, and the majority of those have been done in the past 12 to 24 months. Okay. Mm -hmm. So we are relatively early stage there. But certainly with some of our early investments, we are now making some decisions about whether we continue to be a good fit for each other. So I think you will see a track record of that. Now, you know, we want to be thoughtful and respectful with our partners as we make those kinds of decisions. And others may make different decisions about those partnerships because people have different reads of the data or different investment hypotheses that they're working with. So we'll see how that goes as we mature. 
again, you've given us quite a broad cross-section of different organizations, companies. You know, it's sometimes it's hard to even know the word to use that you invest in in different ways. Do you find that through your application process and through your evaluation process of the application that it's different working with, you know, a nonprofit organization than a for-profit organization or even, you know, now we're seeing a lot more hybrid organizations. Um, is the language different? Is the understanding of investment different? Is just the approach to what a business model is? That, is that different or is that converging in some way? That's a great question. Well, one insight I think that we learned from and have adapted to is that the open window on the website is a better fit for nonprofits and civil society or researchers than it is for entrepreneurs growing their ideas through the market. There's a understanding in the nonprofit sector that one fills out applications and one submits them and then you hear back. And that's just <laughs> generally how... That was a really nice way to put that. I like that. That was very nice. <laughs> yeah, that's just generally how equity investing works, right? Equity investing is we're going to both share ownership of this company together and... We don't quite know where we're going or how we're going to get there, but we have some ideas and we need to make sure we really like each other and that we really want to work together. And there's not a tradition so much there of filling out applications and then waiting to hear back. It's much more of a get to know you, give and take, spend a lot of time thinking about not just the idea and the innovation, but the entrepreneur. And so we have had to adjust our processes a bit to make sure that we're not sending the wrong signal to entrepreneurs who want to scale things up through the market by requiring them to fill out uh, long formal applications. Mm -hmm. Rather, we develop the business case much more ourselves, hold the pen, if you will, more ourselves when we're working with private entrepreneurs. So that's a sort of tactic that we've learned about. But, you know, in terms of people thinking about an exit strategy, for example, I think in the sector collectively, I don't know what you think, but we're all getting smarter about pushing nonprofits and pushing ourselves as people who engage with the nonprofit sector to say, okay, what's your exit strategy? Mm -hmm. you just want to grow and persist forever. <laughs> What's your strategy for catalytic change? And that's converging then a little bit how the language that people use, the tough choices that people grapple with between those firms who are going to scale something up through the market and those who are going to deliver things as a nonprofit or through the public sector. So I'll give you an example. I haven't talked too much about grants that we've made. So I could tell you about something interesting on that front. Yes, please. We are co-funding with the government of the state of Tamil Nadu, a randomized controlled trial to measure the impact on anemia of iron-fortified rice delivered through the public subsidy system. So the PDS, those shops that exist in India where poor people can go and get subsidized food. And this is interesting because while the rice is being provided by PATH right now, there's a clear exit strategy for PATH and for IFMR, the research institute that's working with them in this project. Success here is the government figures out 
how to deliver the subsidized rice through this system, figures out how to procure that rice and delivers it themselves. You know, this is a catalytic investment by PATH and IFMR to help the government test that out and feel their way around this. And so that means that the investment is structured as a randomized controlled trial to measure health outcomes, yes, but it's also a really practical operations research exercise of how will you write those procurement contracts? How will the government make sure that the quality control is assured on this rice and make sure that it gets to these shops in a timely fashion? And they're asking all these questions that are about how are we going to do this when it's done by the right actor to deliver this at scale, which is the government, not the nonprofits that are currently you know, on the front line right now. So it's quite a nice example of evaluation, innovation, with a clear path towards an exit for the nonprofits who are engaged right now. I'm glad that you described your staff as generalists, just because you've already put so many different topics on the table at this stage, you know, having to pivot from, you know, <laughs> thinking about agriculture, you know, tractors to, you know, rice arbitrage to, you know, this, that, to BOTAs in, in Uganda. That's, it's quite a portfolio that you're already looking at, even with 27 investments that, you, that you've currently done. Is there a sexy topic that you guys find that your your staff are gravitating towards, you know, as far as innovation is concerned? Do you do you find that you kind of lean towards technology or do you find that, you know, you, maybe you try to stay away from it specifically because oh, everybody does mobile phones, everybody has apps? Is, do you find there's any bias there or anything that you you see more of in these applications? So this is an interesting, I mean, the jargon word kind of for what you're talking about is this additionality and you know, where are our resources particularly useful? It's a great topic that we struggle with. We are excited about technology, absolutely. But we do define innovation broadly as well. So thinking about policy change, regulatory reform, you know, those are things that we're equally keen to support entrepreneurs to have some space and some runway to think about. And these can be entrepreneurs working on changing the way their own governments work, not just folks working to scale up things through the market. So one topic we're quite interested in is remittances and figuring out if there are ways that we can continue to help make it cheaper and easier to send remittances across borders in particular. One company that we've invested in that's working on that is called Aftermarket. And the CEO of Aftermarket is a French woman of Moroccan origin. And so because her family is still in, in Morocco, uh, you know, the challenges of sending remittances was pretty salient for her. And Aftermarket takes on the challenge of how do you get remittances to the last mile in developing countries? So sending money from Paris to Dakar we're pretty good at that. Mm -hmm. That's a union or increasingly even mobile money. You know, you can do that. Orange is a cell phone company that does business in Senegal and in Paris. But when you begin to rely more on mobile money for remittances, sometimes you run into the problem in remote rural areas, in villages, that it's hard to cash out. If everybody's receiving $100 a month um, over their mobile money application and you don't necessarily have infrastructure in remote places for people to be able to access that as cash. That means people go back to relying on a Western Union type service, which is relatively expensive. So what Aftermarket has figured out is maybe we can create a network of clinics and schools and shops, and you can send the money to those businesses. 
then individuals can be informed that their credit is available at the school or at the shop, and they can go and spend that credit without ever having to cash out the remittances that they receive. We're excited about this. We're excited about the idea of making remittances more powerful as a tool for development, as a tool for people to make their own choices. And we're excited about, you know, getting those out to places where so far we've struggled to really make the infrastructure dense enough for these services to be easily provided. Yeah, a couple of investments in that space accordingly. Yeah, I, I love the story that you know, the underlying message there is it's the last mile digital, right? You know, you, everything's digital up to that Western Union point, but then you said like you got to cash out. So why not just keep it digital? And just thinking through how do you make sure that that credit process happens at the store or the school or whatever, that's, that's a pretty fascinating adventure. Yeah, I mean, it's, so she's got a lot of challenges, of course. And, and it's one thing to make that work in a small scale, but as things get bigger, you know, how will she keep her own costs under control in managing how this network all works? So this is not a, <laughs> this is, remains a risky proposition. But yeah, the potential for financial inclusion is so great. that We're very proud of our investment there. You've mentioned risk a lot. And I love it. I mean, obviously, you sit in that, you know, just sort of it surrounds you all day long. I'm wondering about, you know, you've talked a lot about blended financing. We've, we've been lucky enough to have a couple other people on the show who specifically look at blended financing. Talk to us about the other private sector actors that you bring into the mix or, or these other relationships. Are you able to, you know, you said earlier, for instance, in Nigeria, where you're you're holding some of the risks that other people don't want to hold on to so that you can facilitate bringing their money into the pot. Do you create those relationships? Do they come to you? Is this part of your network? Can you give me a flavor of how that works? Sure. And of course, the top line answer is every deal is different. But, you know, here's what really I think it comes down to. A barrier to innovation in this space is risk, measurement of that risk, and matching different funders to the right risks for them to bear. And if we're going to realize the promise of blended finance, and if we are going to crowd in the private sector to delivering development outcomes, we have to get smarter at understanding what the real risk is. How really risky is it to work with Bob and Gona in northern Nigeria? How are we going to measure that? And who can bear different pieces and types of that risk? So GIS role, yeah, is to be a little bit ahead of the market and bear the risk that would be hard for other impact investors to take on. That's why it's really as fundamental to our identity that our investors are big development aid agencies. And GIF, in that sense, is a mechanism for those aid agencies to crowd in private money in ways that might be hard for the aid agency to achieve working only through their own procurement and investment mechanisms. So when we partner with others, it's a matching exercise and a conversation where each actor is clear about what kind of return do you need to earn? What kind of risks are you well suited to bear? What kind of venture support are you able to provide? That's one other rule of thumb, which is you should bear the risks that you're able to help mitigate. And so if certain investors are very good at helping think about a talent philosophy or attracting key new talent, then they may be much better placed to make an investment in a company that we all know needs to up their firepower in their finance department. 
And that's great. If they can be good at mitigating that kind of risk, but GIF can take on currency risk, for example, then the partnership together begins to provide well-rounded support for the entrepreneur. And we're each able to crowd in the other's money in a way that can help drive this innovation to scale more quickly. What's the next, you know, three to five years of GIF look like for you? Sorry, GIF. You probably don't like people calling you GIF, <laughs> especially with all the animated GIFs that are out there now. <laughs> fund. But then someone pointed out to me, probably the IMF gets that. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, you're supported by a number of, as you said, large development agencies, other private funds. Is your goal to continue to grow this fund so that it just has more batting power, able to fund more investments, this kind of thing? Do you have an arc of a life that, that's been set? So, you know, hey, we're going to exist for 10 years and then that's that. We're going to wrap it up and let things exit. Or I guess what's the near term future look for you? I think for all of us working in this sector, the the pressure to do more with less will continue. And that's going to be a driver for the sector as a whole to be seeking out innovation and a focus on effectiveness. And accountability metrics become really important. That will help us over the next five years get smarter about where to invest our resources and get smarter about how we can partner with others to help facilitate them investing their resources where there's a greater impact. So that means, very practically speaking, that companies may graduate from being supported by GIF and be supported by other DFIs or other impact investors. But the pipeline that we're creating for those other investors has been really pressure tested for social impact by GIF in a way that can make them their investments more impactful. So we hope to that other investors will follow alongside and we can have an amplification effect in that sense. So when we invest in aftermarkets alongside the venture arm of Orange, the cell phone company, we're actually helping to make that venture money more focused on social impact than it might otherwise be. As for GIF itself, we don't have a target financial rate of return. We do grant making in addition to debt and equity investing. And so we are not an evergreen, financially sustainable institution by design. So GIF itself will continue to grow and evolve, you know, watch this space. But I anticipate that we will have some sub funds that are directed to particular topics. So we will do more specialization over time. And I think we'll expand our partners, our funder partners, beyond the initial group that have supported us so far as we continue to navigate our own journey. Alex, I have two questions that I end every interview with on this innovation series. And the first one is, you know, you're lucky enough to sit at the head of this organization. You received, you said, 200, 300 applications every month. Are there voices that you pay attention to to stay fresh, to stay, you know, innovative, so to speak? I'm thinking Twitter feeds, blog posts, magazines. You know, what is it that you use to sort of keep up to date and make sure that you're on the cutting edge? Well, I do love Twitter. <laughs> I'll admit that. And I really challenge myself to hear from a diverse set of voices. Um, so... You know, one thing I've been thinking a lot about recently is that this new feminist international assistance policy that Canada just launched. I was up in Ottawa a few weeks ago talking to the folks at Global Affairs Canada about this, and it's really 
innovative and exciting. They have said, we're going to direct our aid financing in a way that supports a feminist agenda where women and girls thrive. And they're going to take on challenges we haven't even solved in developed countries, like the division of unpaid labor between men and women, for Mm -hmm. example. Alongside challenges that we are, are more salient, like child marriage, for example. But I mean, this is just going to be incredible to watch over the next few years. How are they going to think about monitoring and evaluation? Do you see social change leapfrogging as something that's really possible? I'm, I'm really excited to learn alongside them and the people who are doing the thinking about that over the next few years. Then, you know, here at home, I've been following the discussion about development impact bonds and whether this is something that we can use more in the United States. Senator Todd Young from Indiana has really been reaching out and starting a conversation about this. And, you know, again, this would be a really interesting example of a tool coming out of development and aid and then being deployed to think about how to do social policy more smartly in the U.S. I really hope that I can learn from from that conversation that's being led here, too. The last question I have for you, you've probably answered already 15 times in this conversation, but I wanted, I always like to put it up here. Is there something in particular, either, you know, a process, a policy, a technology, a, a shiny new object, as I like to say, that you think is really, you know, something super exciting that is not getting the voice it needs right now that you'd like to give a shout out to? Granted, no, I know you just put two on the table, but is there maybe a third one? Maybe, I don't know if this is a cliche or not, but you know, the thing that comes to my mind is partnerships. And, and in this particular case, I'm thinking about some interesting partnerships amongst aid agencies, talking together, learning from one another, being open about challenges together. So GIF is a member of something called the International Development Innovation Alliance. And this is a really interesting group of senior, but not too, too senior people from a range of innovation agencies and funders who get together to talk about how do we support innovation within our agencies and within the partners that we fund. What's hard for us? What's easy? What are the barriers to helping things that we pilot go to scale? And it's I've been just thrilled to be part of this conversation that's substantive and strategic, but also frank and informal. I'd, I'd love to see more of this in development, maybe even amongst nonprofits talking to each other, the way that it's been fascinating to watch these agencies talk with each other. So I'll give a shout out to partnership. That is the first time anybody's ever brought a partnership. I love it. Thank you so much. Alex, thank you for your time today. You know, it's been a very wonderful conversation and I wish you all the luck and I hope that we'll be able to follow up with you sometime in the near future to see how things continue to go. Well, I really enjoyed it too. So thank you so very much for this opportunity. Hey guys, if you found this conversation with Alex valuable, can you take 30 seconds and give the show a rating on iTunes or whatever podcast app you happen to be using? And if you really enjoyed the show, share it with others on Facebook or Twitter. And of course, you can always contact me at aidpreneur.com. Thanks.